For the week of January 14th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor at Green Tech Media. In this program, we are going to be talking about wave and tidal energy. A decade ago, we might have talked about how much potential these technologies have, and today we're talking about why they've struggled so badly. Then we're going to talk about trends from this week's Detroit Auto Show and look at some new ideas for how to run energy efficiency programs here in the U.S., which have also struggled for various reasons. And at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you do not know. Let us turn to my regular co-hosts and say hello, Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton. Uh, Catherine is a partner at the cleantech public policy firm 38 North Solutions. She is here in Washington, as always, and uh, she's taking a break from a very busy week to join us. Hey, Catherine, how's it going? Just great. Thanks so much. I saw your husband, who was director for clean energy at the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign, is going to be leaving his position soon. Does that uh, mean that the the house is going to be clean and the dinner will be <laughs> cooked when you get home from your job every every day? Yeah, that's my fantasy. Let me tell you. Now he has got so much going on. Um, it's it's really great what he's doing. So he's yeah. got a bunch of writing projects and and there are also some multi generational care needs that he's going to step in for. And uh, so we're we're both really happy about this. Indeed. Well, I'll look out for his writing. From New York, it's clean tech investor Jigger Shaw. Still with the job, I presume, Jigger? Yes. I haven't been fired yet. <laughs> well, there uh, aren't many jobs being created in wave or tidal energy these days. After a surge in media, government, and investor interest in marine energy around uh, a decade ago, the industry has largely fallen flat. In fact, calling it an industry these days is very generous. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, there will be around 150 megawatts of wave and tidal projects installed by the end of the decade around the world. That's a 72% reduction in projections from just a few years ago, and it's about as much solar capacity as Solar City deploys every two weeks. Uh, so why... Are we talking about this today? There have been a lot of bad stories for marine renewables in the news, particularly in Europe, where there's been a lot of support. Uh, but this week, a study also came out on wave energy integration costs, concluding that the technology could be more cost effective to put on the grid than uh, than wind and, and other renewables. Uh, now they just need some projects to actually integrate. We'll get into that study in a little bit. But uh, first, Jigger, I'll turn to you. How skeptical or even cynical are you about marine renewables? We, we talked a little bit about this in a Tell Me Something I Don't Know segment, and you, I recall you saying it's a resource issue more than it is a technical issue. Yeah, I think uh, Richard Perez at SUNY Albany has done a lot of work on this and shown that even if we exploit everything that he believes to be profitable, um, you're at you know 1% of the world's energy uh, being provided by a wave. And so, you know, I think that that this is a broad area and we should separate stuff um, like like river kinetic energy like RER Hydro and some of those companies um, I think have an easier shot than the ocean folks. I think that when you start adding salt water to the mix, it really just makes predicting operations and maintenance and all those things much, much harder than the folks that are looking at kinetic energy from uh, irrigation canals or rivers or other freshwater sources. 
yeah, it's it's a technical issue and a resource availability issue. And I don't think a lot of people realize that many of the technologies that companies are trying to deploy today uh, have been an experimental phase since the mid-1800s. And no one has been able to figure out how to make the equipment last in the harshest marine conditions. And, of course, we're looking at fundamentally different materials today than we were 50 or 100 years ago. But uh, still, the problems are persist persisting. Yeah, I, I'd qualify your statement a little bit. I think it's not that no one has figured it out. I think actually everyone has now figured out how to make the materials work, mostly because they just borrowed um, technology from the oil and gas sector. I think the problem is it's like, uh, why should we care? I mean, by the time you pay for all of the costs associated with making them marine resistant with the best technologies available today – you're not even close to getting to a point where you're sub 10 cents a kilowatt hour. Yeah, I I uh, reached out to the Oregon Department of Energy and they pointed me. They're pretty bullish on this. Um, there's a whole Northwest National Marine Renewable Energy Center. It's been around for about five years and it's Oregon State University, University of Washington, University of Alaska, Fairbanks. And um, they've been doing research, doing projects. Their new co-director, um, Dr. Brian now I'm going to say his name wrong. Pology, I think his name is, is at the University of Washington. And I mean, he really thinks that the industry, it, it is going to be a real industry, but it's about five or 10 years behind Europe. That title is about 15 to 20 years behind where wind and solar power is in the U.S. But one of the big issues is that there's a lack of offshore oil and gas infrastructure in the northeast and northwestern U.S., which in the infrastructure actually helps additional development. In those areas. And so while you have the resource in the Pacific Northwest that these folks really believe could provide significant amount of you know, megawatts, um, there's not an infrastructure that so, – so there's a bit of an issue with that. I mean saying that they're X years behind solar and wind, these technologies have not even gotten to the starting gate. I mean when you think about where we need to be for them to even be just considered – experimental in nature. I mean, you know, it's just, they're so far behind. My sense is one of the biggest problems that they have is figuring out why they should exist. You know, like I think that if we really want to solve this problem, maybe they should work with marine protect, protected areas and say, this is a way to enforce marine protected areas because boats can't go over top of our stuff. So it's basically a way to like block off parts of the ocean. Um, I just honestly think that the policymakers are not aggressively trying to figure out how to help them. Going to Catherine's point, I think a lot of folks in universities and coastal areas are pretty bullish on this stuff, and they recognize uh, or at least hope for economic activity associated with wave and tidal development. And this is why you've seen Scotland, uh, which has some of the most uh, intense marine environments in the world, really throwing uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into testing and pre-commercial deployment. But again, I, I think Jigger's right. No one has really done anything meaningful. And actually, going to this study that I mentioned in the show notes from Oregon State University, um, they're claiming that integration costs of wave would be cheaper than wind because it's an always-on resource. It doesn't need as much backup. But I think it fails to recognize how little electricity that you're going to get from an equivalent wind or fossil capacity plant. Uh, and this is sort of a lot of these studies that come out of these universities, I really believe, just take this small slice of a much bigger issue. And 
looping this all the way back around to the beginning where Jigger was talking about resource estimates, uh, the resource is incredibly diffuse. And, and I was talking to this engineer named Rob Sinkmars who does resource and technical evaluations for hydro projects, including a lot of wave and tidal stuff. And he bluntly said to me, there, there's a reason why people build dams in hydropower. They need them to concentrate the energy and they need to use it when they need it. And the areas needed to convert a lot of these marine resources are vast. Uh, for tidal, for example, you might need between 50 and 250 turbines just to, res- just to achieve a megawatt of power, depending on the availability of the resource. So uh, I, I, I believe that a lot of these university studies are a little bit short-sighted in terms of the, the broad challenges happening in the industry. Well, and my sense is that you really do need government backing for most of these, pro, you know, for most of these um, installations because there just really isn't, uh, aren't any market pull mechanisms for it. Yeah. Right, but just to, but just to, I mean, help folks really understand this, government loves to do this kind of stuff. It's not like government is against it, particularly in places like Oregon where they give out, you know, state tax credits like it's candy. Um, so it's not like it's that hard to get $50 million out of the state of Oregon to do a project like this, but they have never proven to what end. Okay. Let's say we give you $50 million and you actually accomplish this. Then what happens next? Right. You know, the thing is, is that I just think that some of these guys think that these science projects are in the public good. And I think that, you know, they have to meet a much higher bar like the solar industry did. We told people, give us a billion dollars, but we guarantee you that we're going to get our costs down and hit this point after 10 years, and you won't need to subsidize this anymore. The title guys can't say the same thing. Let me be clear. I'm all for out there science projects to prove what's possible, but I do agree with you. I don't think that they've proven what the next step is in in this industry. Now, Let's go through some of the companies that are struggling, right? I mean, uh, Palamas, which has produced this way, this snake-like structure that runs a hydro, hydraulic pump, finally went bankrupt uh, after not finding a buyer for the company. Uh, so far, we, we haven't seen any notable successes from Alstom, from Siemens, uh, from Lockheed Martin. They've all invested millions in different technologies. Uh, Finavera, of course, the renewable energy developer, stopped investing many years ago in this buoy technology that could operate a hydraulic pump. Uh, They were testing it off the coast of Oregon. Uh, You can go through the list. There are a handful of other companies just in the last year that have gone bankrupt or stopped investing in these pre-commercial projects. No one, and and I mean no one, and I, uh, I would love for a listener to prove me wrong, has really found anything that works in this area except for building more tidal dams. Yeah, and I think the science projects, by the way, have been done. Hawaii and France have had working units for decades, right? So it's not like we haven't done the science projects with infinite money to prove the concept. We have. We've also done ocean thermal, you know, OTEC stuff. We've done other deals. So the science project stuff is worth doing, and we have done it. But at some point, the industry has to actually prove that they hit a milestone to get more public dollars. All right, let's go on to our second story, and uh, that's in Detroit, Michigan, which hosted its annual international auto show this week. Along with 3D printed cars, the usual futuristic concepts, and Chinese makers hoping to break into the U.S. market, electric vehicles played prominently in this year's show. Uh, Sadly, none of us were actually at the show but we're paying close attention to the announcements from automakers, so we're going to talk about some of those. Uh, for, for many years now, electric cars have become 
pro- more prominent at this and other auto shows. Um, you know, they've eclipsed fuel cell cars as the technology of choice for these concept cars. Uh, so in a sense, the new models coming out of this year's show weren't a total surprise. Uh, what was notable, however, is that the price points are coming down steadily. Ranges are getting longer. And uh, Tesla's really emerged as the automaker that everyone's trying to chase after. Uh, in fact, I saw in December for the first time, Tesla outpaced all other major U.S. manufacturers in EV sales. Catherine, I think you're a lot like me in this one. Uh, you're not really that into cars, but interested in car buying trends and broad environmental performance trends. In that context, what stood out as interesting to you this week? Yeah, I um, I reached out to Jen Cullen, who is the interim president of the Electric Drive Transportation Association. She's my go-to person on on electric vehicles. And, you know, what she and I were talking about is just how many new models are out there. Everybody's got one. There's this enormous diversity of types of models, of price points, of ranges, of different, you know, not just, as she says, they aren't just either compliance cars, meaning they're, you know, meeting cafe standards or rich guy cars like Tesla, but there's just a, such a huge range. Um, she also highlighted that, you know, these guys aren't getting crushed with the low gas prices, that they actually did 15% more sales in December, this last December, than the previous December. So they are, they're really going, um, I see this as like going from incandescence to CFLs was a lot harder than going from CFLs to LEDs. <laughs> so it's like we're, we're, we're in this place where, you know, people are leaping from not getting hybrids and going full electric. And uh, it's pretty cool to see what's going on out there. I like that analogy. Uh, Jigger, what did you make of GM's announcement for the Chevy Bolt? Not the Chevy Volt, the Chevy Bolt, the all-electric. <laughs> or the Jolt. Uh, the the yeah, Jolt. <laughs> people clearly have, have lost their ability to brainstorm. I know, I know. Well, this is why Elon Musk doesn't like people from the conventional auto manufacturers working for his company. Because they went from the Volt to the Bolt. They have a lack of imagination. <laughs> but anyway, well, they, they, you know, they've got this, this car that everyone in the press is branding the Tesla killer. It's a $30,000 or projected to be a $30,000, 200-mile range all-electric vehicle. Uh, definitely designed to rival the Model 3, which will be coming out at the same time. Any thoughts on that model? Yeah, so I think that when Ford comes out with the Ford Focus or Chevy comes out with the Chevy Cruze, no one says, wow, this is a BMW killer. So I don't understand why anyone possibly would think that the Bolt would be a Tesla killer. Tesla, I totally well, agree. Ford, I agree. <laughs> I mean, you know, like everybody who I know that buys sixty to ninety thousand dollar cars, whether they're a Mercedes SUV or, uh, you know, or a BMW, is the ones who are thinking about Tesla. That's their market. Their market is not the mass market. Well, and just even go- after Tesla comes out with their new model, I don't think that they're going to be going after the mass market. The big trend here is exactly what you started the segment with, which is that that when I was a kid, I could memorize and I could tell you just based on looking at the body design of every single car sold. And today I can't because I don't care. And in general, people who are graduating from college today, if they do buy a car, they buy a car purely for functionality for the lowest possible lease price. They actually are they're no longer people who are Ford people versus Chevy people like there were when I was growing up. And and I just think in general, the Bolt is a functional car. If you are one of those people who you know, wants to get an electric car because, by the way, it has nothing to do with fuel. I mean, that's the thing that people always get wrong with electric vehicles. Fuel is not where you save money in electric vehicles. It's maintenance. 
the cost of cooling a car with the radiator and everything else is what kills internal combustion engines. And so by getting rid of that, um, you now only have to do maintenance on your tires and your brake pads. I, I was struck by this quote from GM's head of North American sales. We can't pull back on electrification just because gas prices are low. Electrification is here to stay, and we're investing in it for the long haul. And even though EVs are still a small portion of sales, I think it's very notable to see that executives at the largest automakers in the world are saying at these auto shows that EVs are going to become a big piece of um, their business going forward. But still, Elon Musk thinks the auto companies are a joke. I mean, in his uh, well, speech, he, in his speech, he looked around him and said, "Yeah, they're doing an okay job. We need to do a heck of a lot more." And he's absolutely yeah, but right. I mean, this is this is from a guy who sells less than a hundred thousand cars a year. So, look, I mean, I think Elon Musk is amazing. I think Tesla is amazing. But the, the part that I actually like follow more closely on the electric vehicle side is the shocking amount of like of of a lack of presence by the electric utility companies. If I was an electric utility company, I would do be doing ten times more to support the sale of EVs. All they're really doing right now is saying. We'd like to go to the Public Service Commission and rate base more charging infrastructure getting installed. And it just seems like you would do way more if you're an electric utility company. Yeah, I mean, it's not really in their sweet spot. <laughs> um, but it could yeah, be, I, though. Yeah, yeah. no, def- definitely is a huge business opportunity for them. I agree. But, um, Stephen, I thought it was notable that those comments that were made um, really signal a, a real different change in, in the mindset than when, when um, Toyota originally, when the big three were coming out with the, with the early stage hybrid programs. And I was working on this in the 90s with these three vehicles, um, the big three. And they decided not to continue investing, even though the technology was there. So Toyota just kind of took it away from them. And I think now they're not in that place now. They're all in. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I mean, I have to really give a shout out to you know, like the EVAA, right? The Electric Vehicle Association of America, who, you know, I was a member of, and you had like enthusiasts that were keeping the stream alive for the last 30 years. And I think now that we're in the mainstream, um, you know, and electric vehicles are here to stay, uh, it was a lot of the work by those enthusiasts converting Chevy S10 pickups to EVs and, and Vokes and Porsches and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, when you talk about like medium and heavy duty vehicles, there's like a potentially huge market out there. Companies like Odyne doing, you know, plug in technologies for uh, for heavy duty vehicles. Yeah. One other thing I noticed was that uh, a lot of companies really are designing for fuel efficiency and higher performance as a result of fuel economy standards. And many of the executives that I saw quoted in the press and doing video interviews were talking about the impact of fuel economy standards. Of course, uh, as we talked about with Michael Levy, there is this question about a freeze going forward when they actually review those standards. But we saw more aluminum used um, as opposed to steel panels in uh, certain models. We, we saw companies talking about using more carbon fiber, which Amory Lovins has been advocating for for many years. Uh, of course, the push for EVs is a piece of this as well. So the environmental performance piece has been uh, a direct result of recent fuel economy standard regulations and, uh, of course, some consumer pull as well. 
Yeah, I think the one uh, – so the one thing there is that when you switch to aluminum and these things, these are permanent changes. So it's not something the automakers can reverse. I mean these are billion-dollar investments. And so I do think these are permanent changes moving to lighter weight cars and whatnot. Um, I think the other piece of this though that I think I noticeably didn't see um, is the fact that people – talking about the price of a car. And I think the price of the car has increasingly become irrelevant. And and it's not until people start talking about the life cycle cost of car ownership that EVs will really truly be mainstream. I think, you know, if people are still talking about leasing a car for 150 a month or 200 a month or 400 a month, we've lost that battle. I mean, that we've got to we've got to be including maintenance and fuel and talk about sort of the overall cost of owning a a car every month or else we're not going to win. Well, that's why uh, Elon Musk bringing this around. I'm not a fan, I'm not an Elon Musk fanboy who thinks he can't do anything wrong, but I really like him because of his sense of morality about these types of decisions, these these fa- these environmental factors. You know, he's pushing EVs because he wants to do good by the environment um, while also creating a pretty kick-ass car that people like. Um, and he said, the main reason I'm here, quote, is do what I can to encourage other automakers to accelerate their electric vehicle programs because the need for sustainable transport is incredibly high. Uh, so that's different from the total cost of ownership that you're talking about, but I think very similar to what you're talking about. We need more executives like that coming in and trying to change the conversation and driving this sense of environmental morality and the technology choices that automakers are making. Yeah, I think that's all well and good, but it's going to be the PPA equivalent in cars that are going to win. I mean, it's going to be business model innovation and financial innovation. People have got to, cars are extraordinarily expensive. AAA says that it costs the average car owner $9,800 a year to own a car. That's almost $850 a month, right? And so, I mean, EVs are definitely cheaper than $850 a month, but people don't view it that way. And until that light switch goes on, I just think that Elon Musk and everyone else has still got a ways to go. Uh, speaking of a ways to go, we have a lot of work to do in energy efficiency programs in this country. Uh, we started off by talking about problems in marine renewables, and we're going to finish off by talking about problems with energy efficiency. So, so residential efficiency has historically been pretty clunky in this country. Um, we set up prescriptive rebate programs, checklists, complicated models, and control the entire process from the top down. Very few people would call residential efficiency a market in the U.S. Um, As a result, say critics of the system, contractors chase incentives and programs become too expensive. So what to do about it? Two contractors, Nate Adams and Ted Kidd, are proposing this new idea called One Knob. And Nate Adams, I've worked with, uh, he wrote a great piece that we distilled into, he wrote a series that we distilled into a single piece at Green Tech Media on the concept last fall, and I will link to that in the show notes. The idea is basically to create this structure for incentives for residential efficiency retrofits around megawatts, the actual savings, and get rid of onerous requirements on contractors. And uh, I don't mean to talk too long here, but I think it's going to be helpful to give our listeners an example of how it might work so they can have some context for this discussion. And then we can talk about some of the underlying problems. So under a typical state efficiency program, a contractor often has a checklist of things they're supposed to do to upgrade a home, you know, like blowing insulation or replacing windows, and they'll get a certain uh, amount of rebates for doing those things. And often they're they're done with very little thought about how the entire home is performing. They're done 
sometimes in isolation in order to chase the individual rebates. And many of the contractors will admit this. At the same time, uh, states and utilities are using extremely complicated mathematical models to estimate savings, which, uh, according to professionals I've talked with who have been very involved in these models, can be off by like 30% or more. Remarkable. Uh, In other words, we don't know how much we're saving uh, in a lot of states. Under one knob, states would take away prescriptive rebates, simply provide a payment for kilowatt hours of electricity reduced, So a home performance professional could go into a home, work with the homeowner to implement really any combination of retrofits in order to reduce consumption, not just those on a checklist. And they get rewarded for the actual performance and have their names listed on this registry to track how well contractors are doing. Uh, So I I think the the monitoring and verification is a tricky part to this. We'll talk about that. Uh, That is the proposal very roughly outlined. Jigger, you wanted to talk about this today. What is your reaction to that proposal? I love this program because I think that ultimately we have two big things that are going on. One is um, a desire for an absolute reduction in kilowatt hours sold, right? So if you look at the Maryland energy efficiency portfolio standard, it's really just about absolute reduction sold, but then also some another you know uh, side corollary, which is that it has to come off of peak demand. Um, and I think that what he's basically saying is is that you know let financing companies and contractors make a boatload of money if that's what they're going to do. If everyone goes after the low hanging fruit and basically goes after um, you know thirty to fifty percent reductions and doesn't do the deepest retrofits, it's fine as long as um, it works and everyone saves money and and you get really high returns. I think that the challenge is is that. Because of this outsized profit motive that exists in energy efficiency, you've always had a tremendous amount of um, desire by people to micromanage these rebates in overlapping uh, rebate programs that are confusing and difficult to um, to implement. Uh, one of the questions I had was, um, I mean, this is a really cool concept, but but don't you think that we're a- we're able to think about this now because of all of the work that's been done to kind of lay this groundwork, get those early adopters, get you know as as clunky as some of those fluorescent light rebate programs were. Like we did all that. There there are really good programs like Efficiency Vermont that ha- that are always trying to be creative in how they deploy energy efficiency. So I would say you know I'm just wondering, Jigger, if we didn't need kind of what's come before in order for this to be kind of ripe. I'm I'm never gonna badmouth you know all of the wonderful people that are doing a great job, but I think Amory Levins wrote his piece in 1975. I think if you if you believe that we're actually in a place right now, almost what 40 years later, that you know that we actually um, have you know done a good job of systematically doing retrofits is what we're talking about here. I think mm-hmm. building codes and appliance centers and all that stuff has been brilliant, but in terms of retrofits. I think we have to conclude that the vast majority of our programs have been really a failure and that we do need a radical rethink of how to spend public dollars on energy efficiency to attain public goals. So I do agree with you, Catherine, that there is a lot of groundwork laid here. But there's one thing that's really pushing this change and I think – uh, spells out the need to change in monitoring and verification and allows us to monitor actual kilowatt hours reduced. And that is that we have the incredibly powerful analytics software. We have the disaggregation techniques. We have advanced meters so that 
the tools are available to track actual savings. And in my opinion, um, as policymakers reconsider how they're incentivizing energy efficiency, there's really no excuse anymore to be using these checklists and these complicated mathematical models to to figure out savings that are usually wildly off from reality. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that the, the part that I think is very frustrating is that the concept of megawatt hours has just never been mainstreamed. What this proposal really is doing is saying, let us now define megawatt hours and let us treat all of megawatt hours the same, which is not something that most people have been okay with because people realize the megawatt hours from LED lighting upgrades are way, way cheaper to create than megawatt hours from HVAC upgrades. So for four decades, people have been saying, no, you've got to combine the fast payback from LED lighting with the slow payback of of, you know, like chiller upgrades and that kind of stuff and create this ESCO business. And I think, you know, 40 years later, we're realizing that we lost out on an extraordinary amount of retrofit opportunities because of this deep retrofit, you know, um, like mandate. And now I think if we move to a straight megawatt hour approach, well, the chips will fall where they fall. The one thing that I didn't like about this proposal is that, uh, it basically allows contractors to use whatever measurement standards that they want. And you clearly need to have some sort of standards on a state level. I mean, I agree with the free market approach, but that seems to be a little bit too free, in my opinion. Oh, no, I agree. There has to be a common set of standards by which you're expending public dollars. I mean, that that's absolutely true. And you have to make sure that all of those data from all those smart meters are actually available uh, for, for consumers to use and to allow others to use it. What? The green button didn't solve that problem? <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. That is the end of our show, and we're going to tell you something you do not know to wrap a bow on it. Catherine, what do you have this week? Yes. So moments ago, the Obama administration announced their methane emissions reduction plan, and it would require that the oil and gas industry would have to cut methane emissions um, by 40 to 45 percent below 2012 levels by 2025. It's the first time that methane, uh, which is, of course, a super potent greenhouse gas, uh, global warming potential 86 times that of car CO2. Um, it's the first time it would be regulated under the Clean Air Act, and it's going to it would be under uh, Section 111B as opposed to you know 111D, what we which we've talked about the clean power plan on. But so this was a big deal, the methane emissions plan. And as I understand it, the natural gas industry hasn't really been opposed to it, right? Because they can save a lot, drillers can save a lot of money by capping methane. Oh, yeah. It's really good for them. Yeah. So this is one of those uh, rare regulations that will uh, thrill environmentalists and not be fought by the drilling industry. Well, I, I, you know, I'd be happy to disagree with that point. But, well, please do. I mean, I think, <laughs> please look, do. I mean, I think these regulations are half-ass. I think they're basically created with the help of EDF, which was like, here's what the what we can get done with the natural gas industry not bellyaching. It's clearly not enough to make natural gas... Um, environmentally better than coal. There's still enough methane emissions allowed in this regulation to um, to defeat the purpose of moving from coal to natural gas, but it's better than what we had before. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. It is going to reduce emissions. So I, I see it as a good first step. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. So this week has been an extraordinary week for my, you know, former company, Sun Edison. Um, you know, and I think maybe we want to talk about it more 
in future podcasts, but um, a couple of big things happened. I mean, they won multi-billion dollar contracts to do solar in Karnataka and Gujarat. They agreed to build a $4 billion, 7.5 gigawatt, fully automated, fully, um, you know, sort of uh, polysilicon all the way to glass manufacturing facility in Gujarat. And they signed a deal with OMC, which has been doing these oversized solar projects at telecom towers and then supplying microgrid power to the villages. Um, They agreed to 5,000 of these in India, probably as payment for the the $10 billion in contracts, um, which is going to make a material impact on getting 300 million people access to energy. My first reaction to the Sun Edison deal was that this is exactly what we're talking about when we say these uh, bilateral negotiations and company-level developments are what's going to drive a, a global climate deal forward. Well, I think it's a big deal because um, – I mean, I don't, I don't know if you guys know, but I mean the 26th is Republic Day in, in India, which is a massive, massive holiday. And everyone in India right now is buzzing about the fact that Obama is coming on Republic Day. So this is going to be a big deal. Every media outlet in India basically will be focused on this. And and I think one of the lobbyists who helped to get this deal done was uh, Modi's former, I think, communication director for his campaign has now set up a lobbying firm. And he's the one who actually helped to broker this deal. So I'm sure the Modi government knows about it. And I'm sure that they've made sure it was on the agenda with, with the Obama visit. I'm going to stray from energy and talk about... Uh how politicians interpret economics, which I, I actually think offers some lessons on how uh, politicians interpret energy markets, too. So I don't know if you guys saw this piece from Ezra Klein this week at Vox, uh, where he showed that the economic benchmarks that Mitt Romney claimed America would hit under his presidency have actually been hit. You know, the $2 a gallon of gas, which actually no one really thought would happen during the 2012 campaign. Uh, we're at below 6% unemployment, which Romney claimed we could get to by 2016 under his leadership. Uh, Job creation figures as well are on par with what Romney claimed. Uh, And so this quote from Klein is gold. If Mitt Romney were president right now, he'd be seen as the second coming of Ronald Reagan. And he's absolutely right about that. I mean, Republicans would be singing his praises, um, but of course they'd never dream of giving any credit to President Obama. And I bring this up not to be partisan, but because I think the issue goes well beyond uh, that specific example. It's just deeper problem with how economic indicators are construed. And it's just all about plain laziness, argues uh, Ezra Klein. And the same goes for politicians taking credit or dishing out criticism about energy markets, you know, gasoline prices, natural gas prices, the falling price of renewables. We just give way too much credit and lay way too much blame on presidents or other politicians for changes when it's in our favor to do so. So people should read the piece. It's called What Would Republicans Say If Mitt Romney Were President and the Economy Was This Strong? I, I, very thought-provoking for me. Well, and he's going to run again, so hey, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a really good piece. I mean, and, and the Political Gab Fest actually did a whole thing on how um, political affiliation is now like an acceptable form of discrimination. So there yeah. are people out there who are basically asking the right questions during HR to figure out whether you're a Republican or Democrat and then not giving you a job if you're on the wrong side, no which way. is absolutely ridiculous. Really? Yeah. Wait, when did they do that show? I'll have to listen to it. Uh, it was uh, not, not that long ago, like maybe a month or month ago. So yeah, it was basically how like this, a little bit more, probably two months ago. I'll have to check it out. 
And that is the end of our show, folks. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And if you have questions, comments, story ideas, send them on over to me, and I'll pass them around to the gang. My email is Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. You can also interact with the Energy Gang or each of us individually on Twitter, and you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. Uh, That is about it. Catherine, have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Jigger, you as well. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We will catch you next week. (music) 